0: Good afternoon everyone um, thank you for joining us today and thank you to our listeners who are joining on our live stream. The UK is now a third country Uh, The Prime Minister delivered a speech this morning outlining the UK's uh, ambition uh, for its future, including an ambitious free trade agenda and an increased role in international organisations. We know that the EU have published their draft mandate as well, setting out two key red lines. One is fish and two is fair competition. Now, we know that the UK and the EU have uh, just under 11 months to negotiate their future relationship, Um, but the UK must also get ready for life outside the EU single market and customs union. This includes setting up border infrastructure, agreeing the details of the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's very ambitious, and can it be done? This is the question we'll be asking um, in this lunchtime session. To explore this, I'm joined by an excellent panel Uh, Stephen Adams, Senior Director at Global Council, who has more than 15 years of experience in the field of international economic policy, trade policy, cross-border financial services. Um, We have Tony Smith, a global border security consultant and former Director General of the UK Border Force. Prior to that, also Head of Border Control in the UK Immigration Service. Um, Mike, to my left, Director of Policy at the British Chambers of Commerce, a global network of over 100 British Chambers and business groups in the UK, And overseas. He joined in 2011 and is an experienced economist. We will also be joined by Stephanie Bolson, who has been held up at the Prime Minister's speech. For those who don't know her, Stephanie um, moved to London in 2016, is the Europe and Ireland correspondent for the German newspaper Die Welt, um, where she explains the twists and turns of Brexit, often to a very bemused German audience, but also tries to explain the German perspective on Brexit here in the UK. And she published a recent article on The Spectator, um, which is very worth reading if you have time. So, some housekeeping rules before I uh, start turning to my panellists. Uh, just a reminder that this event is on the record, um, and in true IFG style, we do like tweeting. So, if you do have comments to tweet, or you want to sort of share what our panellists are saying, do use the hashtag uh, hashtag Brexit. If the fire alarm goes off, this is not a drill. uh, You will be advised to leave the room and make your way outside, um, uh, and there will be fire wardens to show you the way. Um, And with that, I believe everything is done. Oh, yes, the gathering spot is by the King George uh, statue outside the front door. There you go. Um, Right, let's get started. I think we probably have about 55 minutes. I have lots of questions, but I'm sure you've got questions as well, so I will um, keep time for those. Stephen, can I start with you, possibly? Um, we've now got a sense of the UK's asks. Uh, no dynamic alignment, uh, but also no willingness to lessen standards. In fact, we might even up our standards. Um, what do you make of the UK's government starting position uh, should it be more ambitious about what it can try to achieve, or is this a sensible start given the EU's position?
1: Uh, okay. Well, um, well, I mean, I'm not sure that the UK government has set out a lot of asks as opposed to setting out a very clear sense of how it conceives of itself in this negotiation, which is that it conceives of itself as broadly speaking the same as any other third country that enters into an FTA negotiation with another WTO member. And the defining feature of an FTA negotiation is that they are negotiations between two or more self-consciously autonomous states. And essentially, if you want to define what does and doesn't happen in an FTA, the line that defines that is the line beyond which a state has compromised ultimately its autonomy to set its own rules, its accountability to its own legislatures, its ability to withdraw from often with a cost, but to withdraw from forms of alignment that it might have adopted, or obligations that it might have adopted as part of the agreement. So I think the, the UK is essentially adopting the position that it will be negotiating with the EU like any other external non-EU member. Um, and that has some quite important obligations. And in fact, one of the things we might want to talk about is whether the EU believes that, and whether the UK believes it, uh, because it seems to me actually that's the, in many respects, the key Uh, the key key thing. Um, We sat here six, seven months ago, and we talked about what was gonna dominate the first phase of this negotiation. And uh, I said at the time, actually, that I thought that if you wanted to know what the EU was gonna ask for, you should take out of the drawer the original draft of the Northern Irish Protocol, uh, which established what the EU saw as desirable with respect to a level playing field. Um, And if you look at the negotiating mandate today, that's precisely what it says. It's by far the most ambitious set of demands the EU has ever made of a trading partner for the reciprocal gesture of tariff and quota elimination. So early on in the process, Theresa May said that the UK wouldn't accept Canada for Norway, uh, and the EU has essentially offered, broadly speaking, Canada for Norway, at least at the level of level playing field provisions. Um, So the question, it seems to me, is how are we going to avoid a crash? Because if you you start with the assumption that the UK means what it says, when it says that this is a conventional FTA, essentially the the, the non-negotiable is autonomy, and you take the EU's position, which is that you will adopt a very, very close level of alignment with certain (coughs) defined EU standards, most closely aligned, at least in the current negotiating mandate draft form, most closely aligned on state aid, where the expectation is clearly that the UK will adopt the AQI, will transpose the AQI for state aid. Um, there's an obvious crash there, and there's a crash coming on fisheries as well, and again, we sat here seven months ago, we said LPF and fisheries would be the two big issues. Um, on fisheries, the EU wants a, 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 a locked-in quota uh, that cannot be changed without the consent of both sides and um, that is of course fundamentally different from what the UK is envisaging, which is something much closer to the Norwegian arrangements where quotas are allocated on an annualized basis at a level determined by Norway, which remains autonomous on fisheries, although not on much else. Um, so we clearly have a kind of, we have a, we have a, we have a crash coming early on, and, and the question is gonna be the extent to which those non-negotiable positions turn out to be negotiable. Um, and I suspect that um, they they may prove less negotiable than we think because in many respects they are binary. They do come back to this position, at least on the UK side, of what it means to be autonomous or not. Um, And I think this is one of the things that we've struggled with over the last couple of years, that the notion that there is a spectrum of outcomes here, I think actually there are only two broad outcomes. One is one in which the UK insists on autonomy in every respect, and one in which it doesn't. Uh, And it's a difference between, you know, Hard and soft, I suppose, or hardened hardened essentially Norway, some sort of high alignment. Um, And I don't see the next four months changing that, uh, particularly. And I think that then brings us back to the main question, in some ways, which is, um, do we have enough time? Uh, If it is possible to get a deal, do we have enough enough time? Um, And actually, it seems to me that if the EU accepts that, uh, if the two sides accept their starting positions, then there's no reason why we can't get a deal in 11 months. Uh, as long as there's adequate political willingness to compromise. It's never seemed to me that the issue with this deal is the technical negotiation itself. The the, the, The problem is with ratification, and in particular, and I think these guys will have much more to say about this, is with readiness, because getting the border ready, getting the trading community ready for a new framework in 11 months even given the fact that we've had two and a half years for people to start to adjust, and large businesses have adjusted. But of course, it's not about the large businesses, it's about the long tail of of smaller traders, I think.
0: Great, thank you very much. And I'm glad you brought up ratification, and the IFG is looking into doing a bit of work on that, um, why the EU uh, has the ratification process it does, And what are the political implications of some of that, um, Stephanie? I was going to come to you next, but I'm going to give you a minute to, uh, to sort of uh, yeah listen, absorb, and then and then I'll come to you on the EU's position. Um, Mike, perhaps I could turn to you then. Um, obviously, these trade agreements are going to fundamentally potentially change the UK's trade outlook, and that has big implications for business. Um, and when we're thinking about readiness as well, adapting to life outside the single market and customs union, are businesses worried about the prime minister's deal, um, about the new paperwork, potential for more bureaucracy, um, and how has the government been engaging with business throughout this okay, process?
2: Okay, so th- th- that's, that's, those are bigger questions than even it, than it sounds there, because mm. um, so we have just a little bit of background just to set the context for this. So. Um, Our business membership network is, as you said at the beginning, a a network of chambers of commerce that stretches all the way from Glasgow to Ghana and from Birmingham to Buenos Aires. Um, We employ about 300 people directly who are export-import specialists and who provide training services, document services, all the kind of technical know-how, even down to how to apply for loans uh, to help facilitate international trade. Um, And we're training many more as well to account for the changes to come. But I think what that gives us is a a certain perspective on Brexit, which is that I think we see it from every angle that there is to see it as a business, so not just as exporters but importers too. We see it as consumers as well as producers, um, as supply chains as well as companies, um, as creditors and debtors. So there's no monolithic block of opinion in the business community any more than there is um, in the public um, at large. But there is, I think, an area, there are certain areas where I think we can say from our own polling evidence that there is quite a lot of agreement. And that is, first of all, the need to involve business throughout, um, both at the big picture level, um, which we've been talking about, but also at the technical level of implementation. And I saw this quite a lot in the phase one of this process Um, where actually you had within Whitehall institutional structures that grew up around the casework that business groups like ours were able to share with government. So um, I think just about every department of government had some kind of employer representational panel that grew up around that casework. And those have evolved over the years. And I think building on those and learning what worked well is going to be really important in making sure our expertise is there at, at a timely On a timely basis, Um, but aside from all of that, I think there's sort of three things really that we need to do to make sure that once we do get into the kind of the nitty-gritty of the implementation, that business expertise is there when we need it. The first is we definitely need some kind of process of formal consultation. It can't look like what we what we're used to. You know, the old sort of 12-week period and then there's a period for for government responses, we don't have the time for that. Mm. But then we need to explore alternative ways that we can can make it formal, so committees and meetings and that kind of thing. We need to replicate what we did in phase one around departmental outreach, so we had a programme of business roundtables. And we did one with the Treasury, we did one um, several with the Home Office, we did multiple ones with the Department for International Trade, with the former uh, Department for Exiting the EU. And actually, that's a good way of bringing in the geographical perspective. And then finally, I think in the negotiations themselves, we can learn from other countries in implementing a kind of room next door mechanism um, so that we have the timely um, access to expertise on a confidential basis when it's needed when those trade-offs start to become quite technical. Because what I've learned from the last few years is that even you know when you, you invest a lot of money in this stuff, Whitehall is never going to have all of the subject matter expertise that's required to assess trade-offs at a kind of technical level. Um, you need to reach out for the information that you need before you can put those choices to negotiators and politicians. So as a business network, that's what we're most focused on, if you like, just getting those structures right and making sure that that expertise is there when it's needed.
0: Just a quick follow-up question, because you obviously talk about some of the things that are happening, but do Mm. you think they're happening sufficiently given the the tight timetable?
2: So, I think that there are some existing structures that need to be repurposed. So, for example, there was a a large number of um, committees and working groups that grew up, for example, around the EU Settlement Scheme on the Home Office side. You could imagine that those could be repurposed for, for example, for the future immigration system. Ditto on the Department for International Trade side. So I think as things stand, there are something like 18 what are called e-tags or expert trade advisory groups. Um, we sit on most of them, so it's, it's, it's quite a burden, actually, um, for business groups to get involved with that. And they're quite specific. You know, They cover things like trade with third um, country continuity, um, the detail of customs paperwork, a whole range of things. Um, those, those advisory groups are themselves evolutions of existing groups. So those will need to be repurposed. They typically meet on a monthly basis. That's going to have to come down, I suspect, to, to a, um, a, uh, a sort of faster cadence of meetings um, and we'll have to make more use of virtual styles of meetings and things like that. But I think the basic infrastructure is there, it just needs to be Repurposed and, and, you know, evolved for the for the compressed timescale that we have.
0: And I know the EU's been doing likewise a lot of thinking about that as well. Um, Tony, looking sort of more at government readiness, the UK's readiness for life um, outside the single market and customs union. Now, if you were still at Border Force and were responsible for being ready. Uh, by the 31st of December this year. What would you be asking your colleagues in negotiations to try and secure?
3: Well, I think the first thing any practitioner would would say is they need political certainty. And it's really hard to work in government. I spent over 40 years working in government for different colors. And and if you don't have political certainty, it's really hard to drive operational policy and delivery. Mm -hmm. Now, we we do seem to have uh, some political certainty. Um, but um, there are a number of things about the UK border that I think are highly relevant here that, that, that uh, I might be able to add value to the discussion about. I'm not a trade expert, I hasten to add. Um, I, I am a border expert and I, I spend a lot of time travelling around the world talking about modern and future border systems in different parts of the world. And there is no doubt that the border management is changing drastically. We simply cannot do borders in the way we used to when I was out there by checking every passport or opening every box. That doesn't happen anymore. There are a range of techniques, which I haven't got time to go into, about best practice in this area, but I'm really quite keen that we we, we look at that because we're going to need those. I suppose most relevant in in terms of this current debate, (coughs) I was asked to become a a member of the expert panel uh, to the Parliamentary Commission on Alternative Arrangements to the Irish border. uh, that was, it was not our idea, alternative arrangements, but we, we were asked, not just me, but other people, other experts, Shankar Singham, Lars Carlson, Hans Meissen and myself and others were asked to come in and say, well, how could we manage a border which isn't a border or an invisible border on the island of Ireland and still deliver some of the changes that this is going to require under the EU exit?" Again, that was uncertain because the political dimension of the departure wasn't certain. and Of course, it still isn't in the terms of, of Northern Ireland. Second point to make is about customs. And I think, you know, when you're looking at the UK government's readiness for customs, there's no doubt that customs has taken a back seat in the UK. I lived through the merger of immigration and customs at the border in 2008 with the creation of a single border force. Uh, that meant that a number of legacy customs officers moved into the border force. Uh, the border force sits in the Home Office under Home Office jurisdiction. So when I did get the top job, I was answerable to Theresa May. Uh, for my orders and direction about what ought to be done at the border. That was very much a focus upon people, immigration and security of the border and not customs because we were able to say well actually we're in the customs union, we're in the European Union, we don't need to do a lot of things that otherwise we would have to do if we mm. were. Now, now now, policy did not move to Home Office, policy stayed in HMRC. I was also found in my inbox when I got the top job a letter from George Osborne who was the Chancellor at that time telling me that I was responsible for collection of revenues uh, at the border. But when I asked for advice on that, so Tony, don't worry too much about that because he's over in customs. So that really gives you an idea about how we've, we've approached borders in this country up until now. The challenge, of course, of borders is what sort of checks are we going to be asked to do on, on, on goods. And I think you've all seen uh, you know, the number of declarations uh, leaving Ireland aside is going to go up fivefold, from 50 million to 250 million. Um, there's going to be a, a, a different approach to some of the segments where we don't do customs checks. I'm thinking particularly on, on ro-ro traffic, spent a lot of time down in Dover, on how are we going to check goods where we simply don't have the data. Some of Mike's points about business and how business can help because business has data that government doesn't, doesn't have because we haven't needed it in the course is a big challenge. Uh, I think coming back to Ireland, the Northern Ireland Protocol, in my view, still needs an awful lot of attention and an awful lot of work. I'm still not clear who's going to be checking what and where and how we are going to demonstrate what goods are going into EU circulation or not when we have overlapping customs unions. That's for the policy guys to determine, but from a practical point of view, I need to know what is it that the border force are going to be doing, how are we going to work with our colleagues in the Irish customs, which I dearly love to do, and with the French customs, because actually most borders work well when you have collaboration across them. Good fences make good neighbours, and uh, I would really like to see a joint approach, if you like, uh, we have with the French on some of the treaties on on some of the aspects of border management where we can share uh, information and intelligence and, and have a joint strategy. And I spent some time working on that uh, when I was over working in uh, North America. And finally, there are 27 different departments and agencies, at least depending on who you talk to. Uh, with an interest in what's crossing the border. So when you're head of the border force, you've got potentially 27 different departments telling you what is the most important thing to do. You have to have a control strategy. You need a structure and a governance structure that enables you to work your way through all of that. It's very clear that those structures are changing. I'm not sure the current machinery of government as it sits right now is capable of doing that, it does need a lot more collaboration, cross departmental working and a very clear governance structure going forward so we can clearly prioritise the border transformation programme that ultimately will be necessary in this country.
0: So listening to you, um, clearly there's a lot to do. Do Do you think it can be up and running by the end of the year?
4: Well, it depends
3: what you mean by it. Um, So, I mean, the border will continue to operate um, because ultimately uh, it is a matter for us and our government to determine what we do at our border. And we may not be able to do all of the things that we would like to do at our border within a year. Uh, I do think that we can make a considerable progress in terms of the framework, but I would like to see an overall narrative about what our approach to trade is going to be. And that's across the supply chains and across the modalities, including row-row parcels, freight, and air, uh, by sea and by air, uh, from both EU traffic and rest of the world traffic. I haven't seen that narrative, and until I've seen that narrative, it's really hard for me to give you an answer of what can we do within an 11-month um, period. And there are also a, a number of policy and legal issues about you know, what, what can we do as an individual country, and what needs to go into the joint committees, and what needs to go into the negotiation. I'm afraid I can't foresee what that would be, uh, but, but at the moment it's, it's really hard to be able to understand what position we're gonna be in and in terms of the practical operation of the UK either in 2020 or at the end of 22 or even at the end of 25 because I'm afraid it's simply not clear enough to me to be able to answer that question.
0: No, And and it's interesting that you um, talk about the joint committee, the work of the joint committee in uh, obviously around the Northern Ireland Protocol but also the UK EU negotiations and how those might actually affect each other um, Mm -hmm. because they're distinct at the moment but it's One negotiation turns sour, how would that impact the other? Um, And we've heard today from Michel Barnier, uh, but also from von der Leyen when she was visiting London a couple of weeks ago that uh, the negotiations are important, but so is uh, uh, the implementation of the withdrawal agreement. And borders, Um, and I was in Paris last week with my colleague Joe, and and that's something we heard as well. You know, how is that border going to work? Uh, We need answers. Stephanie, uh, turning to you, I know you've just listened to the Prime Minister, but hopefully you've you've had a chance to sort of quickly look over the EU draft mandate or listen to some of the comments that Michel Barnier made um, this morning. Um, We heard from him that there were two deal breakers one is fish. And the other is fair competition, so level playing field. Um, why is that? Do you think?
5: Um, I think the uh, the fish thing, of course, and have in mind that it's not um, so of so much important of all the member states, but it's something very symbolic. Um, it's important for Germany, but far more for France, for example, because that's also symbolic uh, policies or politics as well. When it comes to the level playing field, um, this is certainly something that has been written into already in the guidelines in 2017 uh, by the German Chancellor, so she was one of the authors, I think, behind the the idea of uh, of a level playing field, that's something that's very important to to the German government. Just, uh, I mean I, I, I certainly cannot speak for Europe, I cannot even speak for Germany but just a couple of figures. If you look at um, what there is at stake now, there's around 750,000 jobs in Germany that are somehow linked, not dependent but linked to uh, business with the UK. Around 400,000 employees in the UK by British companies and around 2,500 uh, German companies in the UK. And already since 2016 uh, trade has uh, gone down by 6%, so you could see that there has been already an impact felt and of course it might be even more uh, in times to come. Um, It's it's quite interesting to follow the German debate now on a political level and when you talk to civil servants in Berlin or in Brussels, it's complete difference. So while it was quite interesting, on Brexit Day we had two interviews. One was with uh, Manfred Weber, Uh, many will remember he was running to become the President of the EU Commission who was basically repeating um, that if, if Brexit is a success, the EU is doomed. Um, and then on the other hand we had uh, some quotes by Jens Spahn, uh, the um, Minister for Health, He's very interesting and someone to watch because he is a potential successor mm. of Angela Merkel, who was saying that actually this was a, we say in general, a bucket of cold water in the face, Brexit was a bucket of cold water in the face of of the Europeans and um, that uh, the nation state can never be replaced by a super state. So there is, on many levels, there is also kind of inward looking reflection of what Brexit means to the European Union. Um, And uh, especially in Germany, looking at the new government, Angela Merkel leaving the stage, this is a a big uh, debate to be had. How much integration does Germany want? How much integration does the German government, the next German government want? Um, Talking more on to to civil servants in Berlin and in Brussels, I get the sense that it's not so much different to the first phase. It's again the same, it's a package, nothing will be agreed until everything is agreed Um, and we have to to stay together and it always comes back to the the level playing field and the clear um, conviction that if, uh, if there is more divergence, access to the single market will be more more difficult. Um, Someone was saying to me actually we should look carefully at the first deal that Theresa May did with Brussels and what is in there uh, according to level playing field. So that was the one when they couldn't agree on the Northern Ireland only and then came back to the idea that the whole of the UK should be uh, in alignment and what is there in terms of level playing field that this is very much what they look at in Brussels now um, again. Yeah, the the point is made that the time is incredibly limited, that negotiations can only focus on what is really doable in in this time. And of course, listening to the Prime Minister this morning, um, the no-deal planning is out again. Obviously, the plans are already there, whether in Brussels or in Berlin. Um, And I talked two weeks ago, I was in Germany, sitting to a uh, German uh, company who has heavy investments here in the UK, and he said, well, I have a year and a half of spare parts in the UK in storage. So, they are ready for that, but at some point, they cannot continue working here if, if there's too much friction.
0: Great. Um, just a quick follow-up question, if I may. Um, we've heard from senior members of the Cabinet this weekend that the EU is shifting the goalposts. Um, how was how that picked up in the EU? Do you think that's
5: true? No, actually, as I said, I mean, the, if, it, if this is referring to, to level playing field, this is exactly what the EU has been saying all along. So I don't understand what this, where
0: this spin comes from. Okay, right. Well, we might, I'm sure we'll come back to that. Um, Stephen, you mentioned two potential crashes, um, but where do you think the landing zones are, and do you think the EU and the UK are thinking about this?
1: Well, if you can get past the two crashes, and obviously they're big crashes, I mean, you you can imagine how you would come up with a level playing field construct that essentially used mutually agreed baseline standards and wasn't dependent on the Aki, and therefore by not being dependent on the Aki, didn't pull the ECJ into the deal as an interpretive mechanism. And on FISH, it must be possible to come up with a model in which the UK provides year in, year out a quota-based system for French and Dutch and German access, but that's in the world of, a world in which you have two partners of equal measures of goodwill who want to deal and who don't see these things as politically uncompromisable on, and I don't think, I mean, I, you know, we, we just, we don't, we don't know, but let's assume that you can resolve both of those problems in that way, then I think we know where the landing zone is. And the landing zone is a relatively conventional free trade agreement, uh, which, its most important practical impact is to eliminate tariffs and quotas. And broadly speaking, beyond that, most FTAs don't really do anything very much. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's the and that's clearly what the government is interested in. And obviously, there's a there's a series of flanking things around equivalence for financial services and adequacy for data protection and security cooperation and customs cooperation. But the the core deal that the government is conceptualising is clearly a relatively conventional FTA. The challenge will be that if you try to bring in uh, a much more asymmetrical approach to level playing field, and if you bolt on the fisheries and you can't resolve either of those issues, then, then does that make it impossible to deliver that core tariff elimination package?
0: And on the question of services, obviously services are hugely important in the UK. Mm-hmm. Where do you see services fitting in this negotiation? Uh, will we have any progress this year? Is it something that's going to be pushed back after 2021, requiring the EU and the UK to issue... Unilateral measures? Yeah, well, bit,
1: I mean, I think the, the, there's a big, there tends to be a big misconception about services and free trade agreements, is which is that free trade agreements don't liberalize trade and services, generally speaking. They occasionally, at the margin, what they fundamentally do is they lock in the existing openness between two third countries extend the scope of their GATS schedule. They don't normally liberalize trading services any further than it's already open, and often they won't even lock in everything that's already open. There's a big conceptual thing that many people don't understand about services and FTAs. From the point of view of our relationship with the EU, there are kind of, there's, broadly speaking, there's three things that matter. There's services that you can sell cross-border which aren't intensively regulated, and you're gonna be able to go on selling those services pretty much as you are now in most cases. There are services that you can't sell cross border, or rather, you wish to establish inside the EU in order to sell them. And we already do a lot of that. And in the future, that will be the dominant channel, as it is the dominant channel in almost all services trade in the world. So you set up a business inside the EU to sell a service, because you can't sell it cross border. You can't sell wastewater management, or telecommunications, or retail banking cross border, broadly, in the global economy. And that channel will remain relatively open, because the EU and the UK, between them, are already very open for commercial establishment for services. The bit where it bites is where you have a service that is sold cross-border that is highly regulated. So like wholesale financial services, for example, where it's the European single rulebook that has opened up the scope to serve customers directly from London. And the only thing that's going to replicate the current model in that respect is if the UK agrees to be a rule taker, broadly speaking. And if you've, ruled out that, if you've ruled out that possibility, as the UK has done consistently, even in Theresa May's checkers package, then that, that channel of trade is very heavily impacted. And I don't see how having more time makes any difference at all. It's not a question of time. It's a question of your starting point and the limit of your willingness to, uh, to harmonize with the rules of the EU. But I just, I don't think it's a question of, you know, could we do it if we had three years rather than one? I just don't think that's the problem. The problem is not time, the problem is the desire to be autonomous in your regulatory framework.
0: Which is interesting because a shameless plug here again but the Institute for Government just published a report looking at how the UK can try and influence EU rules from the outside and that's one of the areas perhaps where if the UK were to become a rule taker in some way, is there a way that actually the UK can effectively try and influence those EU rules because it's played such an important role as well and because those EU rules matter to the UK. So the ballgame
1: will be the EU's third country framework as it evolves over the next decade with the UK on the outside and it is almost certainly likely to become increasingly closed to third country trade. and we will be negotiating perpetually with the EU in the sense that we are perpetually negotiating with the Chinese and the Americans, which is how open are you gonna be to third countries (coughs) at the general level, not in a free trade agreement, but just at the general level.
0: Which is uh, interesting because the Prime Minister today said uh, in Washington, Beijing and Brussels, there have been tendencies towards protectionism and that's something that the UK government uh, would like to uh, uh, counter uh, on the the global stage. Um, Mike, what are businesses really worried about, do you think?
2: So I think you've kind of—I hate to generalise about businesses, as I said in my opening statement, because they are consumers and producers, exporters and importers, and all the rest of it. But unquestionably, there is a, a constituency of businesses who see things in quite defensive terms. So going back to trade and services um, that we talked about just then, you know, the big factor there really is freedom of movement of you know, people. You know, that—that that is the big one. If you speak to um, actually, e- even if we take financial services and you speak to banks and, and, and financial, other financial services providers, what they'll tell you is actually the big one for us is just being able to move people around in a free and easy way and the ability of, of senior managers to, to easily move to other countries. So that, that is a, a big um, issue. And, and of course, there will be many other um, companies that are more domestically focused who worry about um, a loss of access to labour. So I think the, the, the mobility of labour, that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, in a sense, that's one of the things we have more certainty over, right? Um, so there's there's that. Um, I think there is a big question as well over um, the timeline for implementation. So we have a we have, I think, you know, a reasonably clear idea of what the government wants out of the, the, the timeline fit for, for negotiation. But what we haven't yet got is necessarily any certainty around what that would mean for when the new requirements come in. And just you know, based around our experience of interacting with government in phase one, so you know there were there were key milestones in spring of last year, in the autumn of this year, where there was the potential for a change without a transition period, for instance. Um, so you know, the sorts of things that businesses were concerned about then were actually if there's some new regulatory requirement um, that comes in, whatever that is, um, one is there the capacity institutionally in the UK to provide that or is there going to be a period where we're building up institutions and if for example if it requires uh, inspectors to go out to farms and check livestock that kind of thing how long does it take to get all of those people yeah, so there's, there's the practical stuff like that which is going to bear down on what the timelines look like and I think businesses have had a taste of that in some of the no deal um, stuff at, um, last year. Um, but I also think you know, it, it, it's easy to get focused on that side of things. But also, you know, there are plenty of businesses that we represent that are anxious to be able to you know, exploit the opportunities of, new, of, of a more independent trade policy, um, who are particularly keen to liberalise trade with countries that they're not used to having very liberal trade with, let's say. Um, and for them, the issue is, again, they're, they're impatient to be able to download those benefits, as it were, and, and to be able to plan ahead on the basis of them, um, but I think, you know, in, in general terms, the worry is for those businesses that that are affected. You know, do we, um, you know, how can we bridge that gap in access to labour, um, and you know, in the financial services trade in particular, what does lack of free movement mean for the ability to operate?
0: Yeah. And I guess adaptation is really important. Michel Barnier mentioned it, um, that businesses have to start planning now and adapting now. Yeah. Um, and I guess we can come back perhaps yeah. in the Q&A on, on no trade deal. How can businesses again, yeah. what what are they adapting to if they don't yeah. really know the outcome And,
2: and even, even within the UK, there are different models for how you bring in major change. So the, the, there's broadly two ways it, it happens in the UK. The first is what's Known as a common commencement date, so you basically you decide on this date every year, like we have with the end of the financial year. You can expect that if any major changes happen that 's when it will happen that 's the easiest way to communicate change to the business community if you make it if you base it around a particular date, the other way you can do it is through some kind of phased process now either whether that 's phased in in terms of a time scale or whether it's phased in for different sections of the business community, as we've seen with pensions auto enrollment, where you start with larger companies and then go to smaller mm-hmm. ones. That's still I mean, as far as I understand it, that is still a debate that's to be had. I mean we haven't really focused on that, but for businesses who need to plan ahead um, and who have to sign contracts for future and have to understand what level of stock they need to keep internally, particularly if it's perishable. Those are, those are really important questions, ones that we get asked a lot at the Great.
0: Um, Tony, we, we were discussing um, in the Green Room just now about it's not only, in fact, the UK that needs to be ready, it's also other member states that need to be ready. And you had traveled to France and, and Ireland as well. How does our readiness compare to theirs?
3: Well, again, it comes back to segmentation, really, in which, which country you're talking about, which route you're talking about, but um, I think probably the, the most stark example is Eurotunnel. Uh, we went through with them, they were very kind, they hosted us, they showed us around the controls. Now, if you know about the juxtaposed controls, the Border Force operates on the French side, French operate on our side, very, very uh, uh, streamlined procedures on the French side with green and amber lanes already in place. Lots of facilities for SBS and livestock checks on the French side. I think fairly well advanced thinking about lots of parking capability. Now that kind of thing has not happened on the UK side. Uh, we have not really got into that level of detail and, and Eurotunnel was saying to us, well, why could we not? I mean, we c- there are things we can do here at our, at our terminal here <coughs> on the UK side, but we haven't really focused on that. In my experience of the UK, preparations have been primarily around Yellow Hammer, and about what to do uh, in terms of crisis mode. If we hit a crisis in terms of queues, a suboptimal border in terms of of goods coming in our direction, we will need basic details like an EORI registration will be required and maybe some kind of simplified declaration, but not much more than (coughs) that. I think the French are more prepared. If you look across into Ireland though, if you look at other routes, they're not at all prepared because they really don't know what the political framework is going to be. And I think we're really very poorly prepared on the whole Irish uh, situation and the Northern Ireland uh, protocol. That's one of the first things we've recommended that the government put some resources and time and effort on. I've heard the political statements about what checks are going to be done on GBNI routes. Um, You know, we're not going to check anything going this way. We are not going to check everything, but, but it's very, very opaque not just for for, for experts like me and for the panel, but but I think also for for people using those routes. The Northern Ireland businessmen, uh, we spend a lot of time talking to those, so it's this uncertainty about what data is going to be required if you are moving uh, goods across what fundamentally is an internal UK border. This is completely new uh, territory for us. Our entire legislation, Customs and Excise Management Act, going back right the way to when we first introduced controls, is geared towards the arrival of people and goods at, at ports at seaports and airports and controls but that it presumes that is an international uh, port of arrival not a domestic border we have privacy concerns about that there are issues about what data can be collected when people are moving goods or within a country that have to be teased out. And as for the border force, I mean, we really don't have any resources on those routes other than those that are currently deployed to check vessels arriving from outside mm-hmm. of the EU into the port of Belfast and into the port of Dover. And even then, those checks are intelligence led. Uh, That's uh, submitted through the CDS system to us and we will selectively determine whether we want to make a physical inspection. So there's a very, very big difference between checks and inspections and we need to understand what exactly those are. So I think the short answer to your question, I think the French are, are, are very well prepared actually, much better prepared than us. I don't know really about other, I think the Dutch are very, pretty well prepared. So I think continental is quite well prepared. I don't think Ireland is and I don't think we are either.
0: Okay. And uh, it's interesting that you, you know, and I'm... I'm glad you brought it up, the GB Northern Ireland, because, um, again, when we were in Paris, there was keen interest in understanding not only how the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic would work, but very much how those checks would be conducted between GB and Northern Ireland, so they are keeping an eye out on that. I want to leave time for uh, questions from the audience, um, but a last one for me to you, Stephanie. Now, uh, I have my views about this, but um, I'd be interested in yours is, how much do you agree with the idea that EU unity is going to break or perhaps be strained in this phase? And how might that help or hinder negotiations with the UK?
5: I, For, for now, I, I, I don't see it. I mean, again, it's Michel Barnier is, again, the chief negotiator. They very deliberately chose him. You hear from all the capitals that they have trust in him. He's got a massive team in Brussels. He has very experienced people, um, also in the... Um, Director Generals like Sabine Vayan was, was moved to trade, this is people who have a lot of experience and know exactly all the legal framework and this is where it comes down to in Brussels at the end of the day, how does it legally work, we cannot uh, build an extra case for the UK that is not legal, has, doesn't have a legal fundament, um, that is not going to happen. Uh, I. it's it's difficult to predict. I mean, you you see, um, what I find interesting is especially the German government is reaching out a lot to the UK already. Mm. I Mm. mean, you can see that there's a lot of bilateral talks already taking place. I think it's quite interesting who's going to be the next German ambassador. There's a change in the summer. It's a very high profile, former or still state secretary, really experienced. So there is a, a lot of goodwill that things should work smoothly, but I think to hope that, and what would be the interest of the UK, because if if the 27 start um, arguing among themselves, that will only mean it will take
0: even longer. Mm -hmm. So there isn't any interest to divide them. And I I think you're absolutely right on bilateral engagement. Um, Also, the EU's uh, delegation now have appointed um, uh, an ambassador who has experience sitting in uh, the EU delegation in Washington, D.C. and in the UN, um, who took... Played a key role, I think, in the Doha Round and in trade negotiations in the EU. and um, very skillful uh, diplomat as well, but understands the technical expertise. And you're seeing that, actually, embassies in London are thinking about who should they have on their teams and who should they be appointed. And I yeah, I agree with you that, that the new German ambassador will, will be quite interesting in that regard. Right, that's enough from me. Um, we have roving mics. Um, and now I'm going to turn to the audience. Yes, question there.
4: Thank you, uh, Robert Moreland. I'm a former uh, member of the European Parliament. Um, The question I would ask is actually how realistic, and you will guess my prejudice on this, is that somehow not having Europe, i.e. the Commission, negotiating for us on trade means that suddenly we will find much easier to export to other countries. I think I would repeat the view of nearly all my former colleagues that we find this very doubtful indeed. And what I see from what I hear from my spies on negotiations, we're either getting cutting and paste of current agreements or running into some problems where the other country is much more concerned of in a lot of trade to us, uh, not i.e. good for our trade balance. I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but I also think from my constituency point of view, which was so, I knew we needed the commission negotiating because the ceramic industry was very, across Europe, was grateful to the commission in dealing with the whole tide created with Asia coming back onto the world market. And I also wonder if I can throw in the Canada agreement, which you haven't mentioned. But to me, it's totally different. It's a very small percentage of the trade with the EU compared with Britain, and I find it difficult to see how you can really use it.
0: Great. Uh, I think well, I might turn to you, Stephanie, as well about is the EU being a bit intransigent uh, you know, with its demands if, if the UK actually wants uh, quite a loose trading arrangement with Canada, but um, hold that thought. Yes, there was a question here.
6: Um, David Hanney, I'm a member of the House Lords. Um, this, um, I would suggest, but the panel might have different views, illusion that it would be in our interest to divide up the 27, to break their unity. Um, how on earth can that be so when you can't make an agreement except with a European Union that is agreed? So there won't be an agreement to be made if you manage to split them up. They'll have to come together around an alternative. uh, Have I missed something or is that uh, not simple simple fact? Because the subject matter of the negotiation cannot be negotiated by individual member states. Uh, Whatever we may think of the European Court of Justice, and most of what we think I think is fantasy, but whatever we may think of it, there's no doubt that the 27 know perfectly well that they cannot negotiate agreements separately.
0: Great, so should we bother or should we just focus on the EU institutions? Um, Stephen, I can turn to you first. Um, you know, Does the UK government have what it needs to negotiate and strike new trade agreements in terms of government capacity, in your view? Uh, well, that's a
1: slightly different question from the question that was asked. I mean, um, it's building it up rapidly um, and you know, given time, I don't think uh, there's any reason why uh, it can't have adequate capacity. It's obviously decided to bite off a lot uh, by negotiating. I mean, obviously, it, is, it has an imperative to roll over the existing EUFTAs. It also has an agenda beyond that. And that puts extreme demands on the machinery. There's no question about that. Um, but there is obviously an upskilling process going on. I mean, I think this point is, is clearly the right one. I mean, if I think back to my days negotiating with the Commission at the Doha level, the, the problem was not could the EU's opponents divide the EU? It's, could they force them into a compromised position by unifying them? Could you get the French off their defensiveness on agriculture? And in this case, it's gonna be the same problem. It's not about dividing the EU, it's about can we, can we actually bring them back together? At the moment, the problem is, underneath the patina of unity, you have a wide spectrum of views on things like how seriously the level playing field question should be treated, how it should be, how it should be interpreted, how much does fisheries matter, and in what ways. Yes, we need access to fishing grounds, but we also don't want a tariff on fish, and we also want to make sure that the Dutch can continue to own a large part of the English fishing fleet. So, you, you have what you actually have is a diversity of views that need to be brought together into a single to a single point where a compromise can be struck. So, I agree with that. But just on the point about the Commission, I mean, yeah, I mean obviously the Commission um, the Commission is a formidably well-equipped and experienced bureaucracy when it comes to trade trade negotiation. Um, it's had the luxury for most, of its, for most of its experience, of course, of dealing with asymmetrical negotiations. And I think that can distort the sense of its, its effectiveness. It generally doesn't negotiate under time pressure, uh, as most FTAs are not negotiated under time pressure. You can walk away. Um, and it's got, the, you know, it's got the good fortune to be negotiating for a very big market, which makes it very, very attractive. But of course, it's also got to manage a very diverse landscape of stakeholder interests. And that can, in fact, prevent it from compromising. So I think when you see the UK's capacity in this sense, it's a question of technical capacity, the UK's economic weight, and the fact that the UK may be able to compromise in areas where others can't. And, of course, there's no, there's no correlation in the global economy between size and the number of FTAs you sign. I mean, tell that to the Singaporeans.
0: Okay. Um, Stephanie, uh, we know that the government wants a looser Arrangement with the EU, Canada has been mentioned uh, a couple of times, so has Australia. Uh, this weekend, um, is the EU being too demanding? And you said intransigent and
5: intransigent. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm not the EU 27 no, nor the Commission. <laughs> but um, uh, I mean, what, it's, it comes back to the, uh, what what Ursula von der Leyen said when she was here and was asked about zero tariffs, zero quota, and she said zero dumping. I mean this is this mm. is the principle, that's the base on, on, on which they are working and if you say well let's have Canada, you, you, you say that to any any senior uh, official in Berlin or Brussels and they say but Canada is really far away and we have a very limited trade with Canada and you guys, and that's what Merkel said some months ago, we might have a competitor on our doorstep. So it's not the, about being intransigent, I mean I'm convinced that there are such, such big economic interests at stake. I mean, only the numbers I said in the beginning about German industry and German trade links. There will have to be a balance, but the, the principle, I can't see it go for the sake of jobs. I mean, also the German Agentur für Arbeit, the agency that overlooks jobs, said there will be no job losses because of Brexit in Germany. So it's, it is a big big issue, of course, but it's not going to impact so much that there will be this kind of compromise that put into question <laughs> the legal framework of the U- European Union and how it does trade deals.
0: Okay. Um, Mike, can I come to you on on the UK's trade uh, policy? You said you know some of your members are sort of looking forward to exploring some of the opportunities of new markets, but how feasible is it, do you think, that those opportunities will be explored this year, given that we have less than eleven months to negotiate a future
2: arrangement. Yeah. Well, we go so that links to the first question, doesn't it? And um, look, there's there's definitely an institutional infancy which the UK government is going to have to get over. Having said that, though, um, from where I'm sitting, I mean, I've, I've spent the last what three years sitting in various committees and things like that, and I've seen how rapidly a kind of ecosystem of structures of committees and groupings of officials of of officials being brought in from overseas or the commonwealth countries for instance so i've seen how fast that can happen so although i'm slightly skeptical about you know just how much you can do at such an early stage of your institutional development i don't think that that is is a complete barrier to it um and i would i would expect given all of the political pressures that it will build up quite quickly actually specifically to your point about how do companies kind of exploit things in the short term. I mean, that's what businesses do, right? That is that is what they do day in, uh, day out. It may be a while off before we have new you know, trade agreements that bring down tariffs with certain markets, but that doesn't stop business people from reaching out in the interim and trying to, to trade on the basis of the quality of their product. Um, and, you know, we spend a lot of time, in fact, we've got a, a lot of our... You know, a lot of our funding as a network comes from you know supporting businesses to do just that um, so I don't think you can underestimate the kind of the ingenuity that businesses will bring to the table when it comes to breaking into new markets and things like that but you know the, the history of this is that when you do enter into treaty based relationships with other countries a whole load of other things start to follow on from there you know you get more um, you know you know, there are more flights that go between the countries. There are more kind of the business trips that flow on from that. All sorts of things begin to flow. Momentum starts when you enter into those treaty-based relationships. And though they may be a while off, as I say, it doesn't stop businesses from, you know, um, trying to grow things in the um, in the short run.
0: Right. Questions. Oh, so many. Okay, we'll, we'll start here, <coughs> and then we'll go to the lady mm. at the back, and then yeah.
6: Simon Jenkins, just very quickly, um, the the division between naive optimists and apocalyptic pessimists, um, one's understanding is, I just want to know if this is correct, a sort of golden path is being plotted, which is that of sectoral sectoral negotiation, such that um, individual deals made on sectors can be combined together to make one grand deal, rather than going for the grand deal covering everything. Is this plausible?
0: Right. We'll hold that.
7: Hi, I'm Belinda Gordon from the environmental think tank Green Alliance. Um, And I'll try not to make this too dull and technical, but um, it sounds like in the Prime Minister's speech this morning, he talked about moving towards a science based approach. Uh, I think he was talking specifically about food regulations. So I take that as a signal that, that the UK wants to move away from the precautionary principle and towards a US sort of science based approach of proving say, you know, a chemical is damaging before it can be used rather than having to prove it's safe. I just wonder if the panel can say, you know, in thinking about the level playing field, how much will sort of details, but important details like that, be part of the level playing field? Or are there kind of different levels of leving, level playing field? Oh, really? You know, how much compromise, mm, that's a room question. for
0: compromises? there? great question. Can I answer that? <laughs> can we no, hold it? Yeah, but yeah. I, but uh, yeah, So it's your assessment of standards which, which we will come to and I'll, I'll give you five There were two more questions. Yeah, one question here.
4: This is sort of a broader one. My name is Frank Langford. I'm with National Public Radio from the US. Who do you think has the leverage in these negotiations?
0: Great. Short, like it. And then last question here, and then I'll turn to the panel.
4: Uh, Andrew Kahn,
1: can I ask the panel to cast their minds forward to December, late December. The likelihood is we'll be in a crisis, there'll be a standoff. What do you think the most likely way forward will be on the 1st of January? Is it going to be a free trade agreement to be ratified? Is it going to be a a rather limited agreement with the promise of doing more sectoral agreements later on? Is it going to be what the Prime Minister calls Australia, which is, I think, WTO rules, uh, or is it just going to be a sort of, uh, in reality, an extension of the, uh, the interim period by another name? How, how, what's the most likely way forward, do you think, in January next year?
0: That's going to be my question. Where, do we, where will we be on the 31st of December? Um, you were keen to take the assessment of standards, so I'll turn uh, to you first.
1: Yeah, well, again, go back to the original Northern Irish Protocol and the level playing field commitments in there. They didn't extend only to the underlying key with respect to environmental standards and labour law. They extended to procedural points like the use of the precautionary principle. It was explicitly written into the Northern Irish Protocol that the UK would continue to use the EU's methodology in determining and setting product and environmental standards. Um, Science-based is American language. I mean, to be honest, it's non-EU language. It's not just American language. Um, Clearly, it's a signal that this is an area where the UK wants to use the potential of divergence. Um, We'll have to see what it actually means in practice. I mean, to Simon's point about, it's very difficult to do sectoral deals in a WTO context um, or under the the auspices (coughs) of a single FTA. There's no reason why you can't come to certain arrangements at a sectoral level, auto, pharmaceuticals, chemicals. Um, The extent to which you can discriminate between your trading partners becomes the key issue. And the Australian model, which I, I, it's ridiculous the way it's being talked about in the media, but broadly what they're referring to is the idea that the EU and and Australia have a range of mutual recognition agreements, uh, which could be replicated in an EU-UK model. What you can't do on a sectoral level is eliminate tariffs. You can't have preferential tariff elimination of a sect- on a sectoral basis.
0: Stephanie, who do you think has leverage in these negotiations? Um, you, you, I mean, have in
5: mind that the UK leaving is uh, equivalent to 19 small EU countries leaving the European Union. That's, that's massive. Um, but... I would I mean if you look at the withdrawal agreement which we finally got, the EU pretty much got everything they wanted. So maybe that answers the question it was leverage. But I don't want this to sound arrogant or something, yeah? So I don't I feel a bit uncomfortable answering the question. Okay, fair
0: enough. Um, on maybe leverage, and um, turning to sort of border implementation, do you think Again, in the green room, we were saying that you know there are border, and I think you said in your opening remarks lots of questions of how you conduct checks at borders on the global stage. Is there an opportunity here to the UK to set uh, a precedent?
3: Well, I mean, looking at the political union, uh, sorry, the political declaration, there's clearly a will on both sides. I think to collaborate on a number of things, Um, and uh, particularly on security and uh, quite a lot of experience of this. So although it's right to say the Commission will negotiate on behalf of the EU 26 or 27, what they are now, um, I think there is scope for some uh, agreements. And uh, so I'm looking particularly at close neighbours, but Ireland, for example, coming back to Ireland, there is an agreement on both sides that the Good Friday Agreement will take precedence over the new... Um, over the. Um, Uh, new arrangement, and so there are structures under the Good Friday Agreement which are Anglo-Irish structures which work well. They are underway. There has been a new agreement around the common travel area signed by the International Conference uh, between the UK and the Irish on, on, on free movement and est- rights of establishment last year. So, th- so that framework is, is is undergoing, the common travel area will prevail. So quite a lot going on there. There's a lot going on already with the French, I know, uh, on security, because we had a lot of incursions across the French border over the years, and they do work, we work very closely with the French. Um, so I, you know, I foresee that there will be scope for us, as we do with other countries, to share information, share intelligence, share data, and try to put smugglers out of the business, try to tackle criminality. That can only work through a collaborative framework and agreement between countries, and I'm sure uh, EU, uh, EU countries uh, would, would, would want to do that. So I'm, I'm really quite anxious to see how can we get the Irish customs, the French customs, the British customs, uh, the Dutch and the Belgians off the leash Um, so that they are allowed to talk to one another about what are we actually going to do? What are the risks that we're trying to mitigate here? What are the processes? We want facilitation, we want control. How are we going to establish operational arrangements which enable us to all do the things that we want to do? So everybody gets the data that they need, everybody gets to collect the revenues that they're entitled to. We can together work on any regulatory framework or standards based upon segmentation of traffic and collaboration with the industry. Those are the sorts of conversations that have not frankly happened in the last three and a half years and they haven't happened because EU member states have not been allowed to talk to us about any of those arrangements. I do happen to know that a number of practitioners in those organisations are really very very keen to come and talk to us about how we do targeting, what our targeting centre does and the UK border we actually got a very good border in this country in fact I know that because lots and lots of countries from all around the world still want to come to see how we do stuff and uh, we have an academy in Dover about how we do certain checks and things so my, my, my main concern is i like, we want to get onto the operational delivery arm of this and I'm worried that we're really really still running through treacle in terms of well how is this negotiation going to go away and how and, and how quickly can we start to come up with an operational plan and I think that it's within our, our own gift in Whitehall to be able to come up with a proposal which would enable us to do that but I don't see enough conversation happening about that frankly.
0: Right, there's three minutes over time, so very, very quickly concluding remarks from each of our panellists. Sorry, I'm good to come back to you on, on the last uh, set of questions, but where will we be on the 31st of January? Of uh, 31st of January, it's 31st of December 2020. Stephen. Oh, God, you're
1: going to ask me first. Sorry. Um, <coughs> uh, I, I, don't see the, um, I don't see the transitional arrangements being extended. Uh, I think there's a relatively good chance that after a fairly ugly smash, we find some way around the level playing field in the fisheries questions, and we have a fairly basic tariff elimination framework, which in the end is the first brick in uh, you know, um, years and years of an ongoing negotiation with the EU on how we trade and cooperate uh, together.
0: Great. Tony.
1: I agree with that.
3: As I said, I'd like to see some bilateral trials. I'd like to see some action. I'd like to see some technology deployed, which is maintaining flows, targeted interventions, some form of segmentation, which is better than we have now on AEOs, on on, on working with industry, so we can agree mutual recognition agreements with our near neighbors on, on flow. Uh, And and then uh, worry, I think, longer term there are more issues, particularly on SPS and on small traders, that will have to go further down the line. But I hope we've got some kind of an an outline agreement on those major principles which will enable our our borders to stay open in uh, December of this year.
2: Great. Uh, Just two quick points for me. I've I've lost count of the number of times I've been put on the spot about what will happen on a certain date, uh, March, April, October. I have absolutely no clue at all uh, but what I, what I hope will be the case is that wherever we are in that process we're not at a cliff edge point for businesses where they could face the prospect of an immediate and major change in their operating environment with no time either to prepare for it or, or to anticipate it. I, I don't want to see a repeat of that cliff edge. Um, whether or not that turns out to be the moment when we transition um, to an end state or whether it's actually just a point in the journey. Um, you know, We'll have to see as we get closer to it, but, but I just hope we're not at a cliff edge. That's, that's right. quite
5: And Stephanie. Just briefly, I think the, the European perspective will be very much... Um, that depends completely on what the uh, Prime Minister does with his big majority, and he's got a lot of room of manoeuvre, and whether there's a cliff edge or not will depend on which
0: choice he makes. Okay. So it appears there's a lot of work to be done uh, over the next 11 months, uh, deal on the 31st of December, possibly, uh, but even then that doesn't mean that, that the negotiations stopped. We might be locked into endless negotiations um, and ongoing cooperation will be important as well. Um, do join me in thanking our panellists. Um, thank <laughs> And do you watch this space, we'll have many more events over the coming year.